Hi, I'm John Chambers, partner in Corporate Innovation at IE and host of The Corporate Innovator, a podcast that gives you direct access to visionary corporate leaders, makers and advisors to level up your innovation game. The Corporate Innovator is produced by IE, Australia's largest independent innovation company. We work with corporate partners to develop, design and deliver transformative ideas to market. Learn more at ie.com.au. In this episode of The Corporate Innovator, I talk with Pat McCafferty, the CEO of Yarra Valley Water. Pat's been in water all his life and is the epitome of what I'd call an ambidextrous CEO. In this episode, we'll unpack how Yarra Valley has built a brilliant self-actualizing culture over a 20-year journey, how a government agency like them has become an innovation leader and the importance of their culture in that success, and critically, how an Creating an integrated PL that includes both social and climate capital has set them up to be a 21st century utility. Let's hear from Pat. I just want to start by acknowledging, Pat, that we're on the, the lands of the Wurundjeri people here in the IE offices. It's been great that we can now start to come back together into socially distant spaces, but we just want to recognise the Wurundjeri, their elders, past, present and emerging, uh, and their incredible resilience and creativity as they've grown so much in the last decade, particularly as a as a community, and we, uh, we really respect them. Really want to get into the cultural elements, Pat, of what Yarra Valley Water have been able to achieve uh, amongst the general innovation topics. But I really wanted to start, because we are in this season of COVID and, and isolation, and hear how things went over at Yarra Valley for you guys as you dealt with that emerging pandemic. Yeah, I think like everyone, uh, you, you, know, you grapple initially with what does this all mean, but as a sector really, and, uh, and as an organisation, you know, we're really good at running incidents because they happen all the time, uh, you know, particularly with infrastructure and operational infrastructure. So, you know, we have very robust frameworks for incident management. So we had an incident management team up and running really quickly. These guys, basically, you delegate to them. And so you're calling the shots because in an incident, you know, you need that sort of, you know, level of authority and empowerment. Within a week, we had everyone working from home. Technology was all stood up. 3,000 calls a day coming through a virtual call centre, if you like, through people's homes. It went really well, I have to say. It's really smooth. We've had to back that up with a lot of communication. But, you know, I think really, you know, you mentioned culture in your opening remarks, but culture really came to the fore, obviously. So that, that operational strength, if you like, and resilience that you have as a, as a sort of organisation that's doing essential services is already there. And then you overlay the culture that's there as well, which is sort of a can-do, make it happen and, and support each other. For me, I, I shouldn't be surprised, but I'm still surprised at how yeah. well it went. Yeah, well, it's great, isn't it? And we had a chance to catch up with a few CIOs last week at a roundtable and hear the different stories. And, and mostly the stories were pretty good. And similarly to you, there was this theme of we, we're good in a crisis. We're almost we're at our best in a crisis. <laughs> and to hear how people pull together and focus. One of the interesting things, I think, that was a reflection that a lot of the, the things that people drew out was how some people might describe agile, this idea of focus team, set timeframes, deliverables, sprinting to get things done, dedicated culture for mm. this outcome. And that's kind of how companies have, have, I guess, approached it in many ways is they've spun up new dedicated focuses to get the outcome. And I think it's been encouraging to go this thing of agile that many companies are dealing with how best to implement it. I think it's been an example where they've been able to start to demonstrate how it works in their organisation. Yeah. Certainly yeah. seems the case for you guys. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. You have an environment where, um, you know, people are, as I said, empowered. So they, they have authority to make decisions. They're backed up. The consequences, you know, of getting it wrong 
aren't severe because they know that they're trusted. Again, as I said, it's sort of pleasantly surprising and I think the, the muscle that we built over many years um, yeah. sort of came to the fore. We've had the pleasure today of working with Yarra Valley Water a little bit and we were, I say, blown away by a government agency, you're a SEBI government agency, the maturity of your thinking around innovation, particularly your culture, your leadership and the steadfastness of that and how strong that has been to grow a really great company um, and get really good outcomes. So really pumped to get into that. If we start with you, CEO, the respect for you is just so tangible from both the board and the organisation, which was so good to see. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to that point and I guess some of your learnings that have helped you lead the way you lead, but also create a culture that allows innovation in the way that it does at Yarra Valley? It starts when I was very young. I actually uh, did uh, year 12 and then went straight to work in the water sector at the age of 17. So, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, I, I did part-time study and did a, a county degree and then an exec MBA and uh, a bunch of other different things along the journey. But yeah, it sort of started there and uh, I was very much on the front line in my initial years doing customer service, which I actually really always loved and has stayed with me all the way through that focus on the customer through my entire career. And so look at a lot of things occur in your career. And I, I, I guess one of the things about the water sector is the ability to move around, you know, reasonably large scale organisations and uh, you can try your hand at many different things. And that's certainly helped me. Sometimes when you have change, you're sort of a little bit nervous about it, but you don't know what you don't know until you have a crack at new experiences. And, and that's certainly been my story all the way through the career, but always felt really uh, supported with opportunities and, and no shortage of challenges like any industry or organisation. So um, I worked through the ranks in finance, ultimately, given the um, educational training that I was doing and ended up working in, it was pretty tough days back then uh, in the water sector. We were sort of downsizing in a significant way and contracting out. And I was really up to my neck in all of that sort of stuff. So, you know, the industry had created a lot of functions that it really didn't have the need for anymore and a lot of in-house functions that you know needed to be sort of you know looked at and uh, I guess from a you know efficiency point of view you know we needed to address those and ultimately I ended up outsourcing IT at Melbourne Water and this was the late 80s so that was a long time ago but it was very pioneering for the time and after having outsourced the IT, I ended up managing it, <laughs> managing the contract at least for the whole organisation. You know, not that I was an IT person at all, but you have to recall also, it was the same time as the emergence of the internet, the same time as the emergence of end-use computing and PCs and yeah. all those sorts of things yeah, moving away from green screens. Yeah. So I was sort of up to my, you know, I was involved really heavily in all of those sorts of things and then doing IT policy and, and so forth. So when Yarra Valley Water was created in 95 uh, through an industry restructure, I got recruited by the first MD to actually be the corporate IT manager at Yarra Valley Water. And when you think about innovation and technology, generally you're thinking that you know those things obviously go hand in hand. So I was able to work on creating a, you know a whole new sort of architecture of IT at Yarra and learn a lot. And we did some really interesting things in that process. We actually you know, if you think about innovation, we created a, um, a system for processing building development and plumbing applications that used workflow. And this is really early uh, days. This is probably now the mid-90s, where we were able to reduce the processing time for a plumbing application from two weeks to 15 minutes and reduce the cost by about 80%. And that, from an innovation point of view, this concept of good service doesn't have to cost more, it can cost less. 
if you do it the right way. In fact, that particular system's in a time capsule at the Smithsonian Institute. Wow. <laughs> in Washington, yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see where they dig it up in 100 years. But yeah, so those sorts of things occurred. And then I, I became the company's first e-business strategy manager around the ah, turn of the century. All right. And, and managing director was very enamored with, everyone's got to have an e-business manager. So I played around with that for a while. And that was great fun. And then I got my first promotion to the executive team, which was in general management and a very highly operational role uh, with customer service. So back to something that had been in my sort of core from the beginning and uh, running a, a group of about 200 people and, uh, you know, large scale operation. And I loved it. And as part of that, I uh, developed the company's first customer service strategy. What was interesting in doing that was that customer service, I guess, is not something, and certainly back then, that had a lot of, you know, theory behind it. There's deep theory in accounting or engineering or, you know, whatever, but economics, but, but not in something like customer service. And uh, so I did a lot of research to inform this strategy. In the end, we built some models and did a whole lot of other things, but the fundamental premise of the customer service strategy was poor service costs more. You know, I was able to show the board that, you know, when you have a complaint, there was a much earlier opportunity to get it right and you could have saved a hell of a lot more money. But if the complaint ends up with the general manager and then the board or goes to the ombudsman, the costs are starting to escalate. So sort of fundamental you know, philosophies around all of that. And the other thing that we looked at was our responsiveness on infrastructure. So we were really, really focused on being quick to uh, respond to say a burst water main or a leak or a sewer blockage. But what we were finding was that it didn't matter how quick we were, if the thing failed three or four times in a year, eventually the customer's patience starts to wear thin. So again, it was sort of, we, we called it a spinning top. So, you know, we're keeping the service running harder and harder by being really quick, you know, and responsive and Johnny on the spot when something goes wrong. But ultimately we need to think about root causes and long-term solutions in order to actually address the customer's need. Uh, and what's important to them. So that was another insight, I guess, in the innovation as well and talking to customers. And, and in that piece of work, we did 360 degree stuff. You know, we talked to what's the staff's experience of providing that service? What was the contractor's experience? And what was the customer's experience? So that led to some pretty significant changes. So after doing that for a while, and at the same time, I was fortunate enough to get a secondment to a water utility in uh, the Bay Area, California. I worked there for several months. What was interesting was that even though we were so close to Silicon Valley, it was very obvious to me that you know Australian water utilities were more innovative than our American cousins. Um, they, they were great at certain things, but from a, I guess an all-rounder point of view and a bigger picture thinking and thinking about culture and those sorts of things, it, it probably wasn't as prevalent as I thought it might have been. And same with the technology, to be honest with you. But that was just a marvellous experience, but it also reinforced for me how precious the culture that we had. You know, I would go to executive meetings at this other water utility and be shocked at the lack of contribution, you know, the head down, no risk taking whatsoever. So it really just made me value even more what we had. And after that, we actually started sending a few people over on a rotational basis, people on our succession plan to give them that experience. And of course they'd learned other good technical things, don't get me wrong, but they also always came back valuing what we had in a pretty special way. So that was a great experience. And I also did the Williamson Community Leadership Program as part of that in 2005, I think. And uh, you know that whole community leadership joined up perspective of how you know the state of Victoria runs, getting exposed to not-for-profits, getting exposed to private firms and, and the leadership challenges. And, and that whole journey for a year was just one of the most privileged things I've ever been a part of. And made me think differently, I guess, about what I'm committed to and, you know, trying to make a, a more of a positive difference. 
Following that, I, I became general manager of the strategy and community, and really that was just at the cusp of the millennium drought as well. So I was sort of thrown into the deep end because we ended up having to do a lot of work collaboratively across the sector to you know solve Melbourne's water shortage problems and think differently and. You know, we came up with target campaigns and, you know, we had this water restriction mindset that, you know, people can't use water, you know, we can save it. But, you know, when we thought of the target, it was another way of, I guess, empowering the community to actually deliver the water savings without having to tell them, you know, what they can and can't do. And it was such a breakthrough in thinking for the sector, believe it or not. But things like that and obviously, you know, recycled water and stormwater reuse and all of those sorts of things came to the fore as well. So the impacts of climate change being very obvious. So that was all really great experience for me and led corporate strategy and, and those sorts of things as part of that. And um, ultimately managing director uh, six years ago. That makes so much sense to me as to how you've been able to bring this ambidextrous culture to Yarra Valley Water. We have talked together, but also with a lot of our clients about how to be ambidextrous, how to really deliver the core of what you're there to do, generally in a profitable sense or in, in your sense in, in creating value, but also to be able to, at the same time, explore, ideate and grow new potential business lines. And it's really hard. Your leadership and then the culture together is what seems to be this crucible for innovation. From working with you, we know it's good. We know it's great. We know it's probably at the, at the top of the field in terms of water utilities and, and even other organisations. And I've observed the, how you, your commitment to leadership is also great. Could you just unpack that for us? Well, really, I think the cultural journey started with the recruitment of a new GM of HR, as we used to call it back in the old days. Um, and Farquhar, and uh, I think she came to the company around the turn of the century. And Anne actually had been, you know, she'd worked for a lot of big private sector firms and banks, but she was a local and uh, she thought it would be interesting to work in a sort of, you know, an organisation that's delivering essential services to the community, but she didn't think she'd be around for very long. But the first thing that Anne did was to introduce cultural measurement. And we use the human synergistics tool. You know, most people are familiar with that now. It's a great diagnostic because, particularly in a utility, because we have engineers and accountants and they want to get forensic and they want to see the data. And uh, if they can look at the science behind it and unpack it, then they can you know, understand it and work with it. So we used that and we, we backed that up with you know, the individual 360 degree and team diagnostics as well. And because it's so visual, you know, looking at you know, blue culture, red culture, green culture, you, know, you get a very quick sense of where you stand and we all know well you know we know now how important you know culture is and engagement is in success and harvard's issued papers everyone knows you know that you know how, how important it is but back then it was sort of really foreign to us in some respects and wanting to sort of understand it so that first measure up was really really powerful for us but it told us that we had a, a classic bureaucratic culture it was actually mixed. So we didn't have a lot of blue from achievement orientation perspective. We had a fair amount of red and a fair amount of green. Now it's fair to say that our first MD would certainly acknowledge that the red was definitely something that his leadership was, was driving. He was super competitive. We achieved a lot under his leadership, don't get me wrong, in the early days. But in terms of being sustainable, it was probably not going to be the right match going forward. We also had a fair bit of green, which sort of comes with the red in the sense that the green being avoidance approval, so people don't want to take risks. But to his enduring credit, he was the one who said, let's do this measure up. And then after the measure up, you know, he was also the one who said, look, I believe in this stuff, I'm not the right person. And he passed the baton on wow. to my predecessor. So that's pretty powerful. So my predecessor, Tony Kelly came in and you know he and the rest of the exec, we really backed Anne in on this culture stuff. But the first thing that we did was, which is very 
unusual back then. It's probably done a lot more these days, but we embedded culture as, as a strategic objective. So we had four objectives, very simple. You know, we had efficiency, customer, environment, and culture. But culture was there. And it was, you know, the way we were going to achieve outcomes in all those other areas. And so we kept measuring, and I think this is an important lesson is staying the course. So, so many organisations I've spoken to about culture have had a go at measuring the culture. They've had a second go and maybe seen some slight improvement and they've had a third go and they've gone, it's not moving or it's gone backwards and they give it up. Let's get another measure, let's get another tool. You see that all the time, but we, we've stuck that with this particular tool. But what we found with the culture was that the first thing it did was it shone a light on behaviors and particularly the 360 degree stuff. And it started to have an influence on who we promoted, how we recruited, we started to get our HR people involved in every recruitment for cultural fit. We'd obviously worked out what our desired culture was and the gap between where we were and, and where we wanted to head. So, you know, then we started to change all of our practices and procedures. You know, what are the things that are getting in the way of uh, an achievement-oriented culture where people take responsibility for their career development, they work great in teams and, and they encourage each other? You know, what are the rules and processes, the embedded things that are getting in the way? So we worked really hard on that, but we also then started to realise that a lot of people had interpreted moving to this sort of culture as, oh, you've got to be nice. It's all about being nice. And good, nice is good, you want nice, but it's about outcomes. <laughs> so when you're working on culture, you know, having the understanding that if we get a high-performing culture, we're going to deliver better outcomes for everyone, our stakeholders, our customers, our, our people. So that was a really important learning or, or insight, I guess, that we had. So we started to move away from, no, it's not about being nice, but it's about being candid, but it's about doing things in the right way. We realised that we still needed to add to the mix, if you like. I call it Anne's special mix. It's a secret sauce. So. <laughs> and uh, we haven't written it down, really, uh, but because Anne had sort of been really successful in introducing some of these changes to us, you know, we kept backing her in and she would... Then she came to us and she actually said, I think we need something more than, than what we're just doing with the human synergistics tool. It's powerful, but it's not enough. So we started to look at uh, requisite organisation theory, the work of Elliot Jacques, and uh, he did that at CRA, you know, prior to Rio Tinto. But what was interesting about requisite organisation theory is that, as I was saying before, you know, you might go to uni and you'll learn a discipline, but no one gets taught how to be a manager. You know, there might be a little bit of, you know, managerial sort of training, but, but, but not deep. How do you practice the art of management? You know, how do you delegate a task? What's the best way to do it? <laughs> How do you ensure someone's the right fit for a job? Do they have the knowledge, skills and experience, the right behavioural attributes? Do they have the um, intellectual capability? You know, I mean, really deep set of tools which we applied. And again, though, we didn't apply them slavishly because with all of this, what we've done is we've picked certain instruments or concepts, applied them to the business, but not religiously. When we've found that it's had unintended consequences on the culture, it doesn't quite fit. We'll take that bit, but we won't take that bit. And that's what I mean about the special source. But with RO, Records Organisation Theory, there were certain disciplines that came with it that, that have still stuck today. And that was a really, you know, really important piece of work. You know, things in RO, for instance, concepts around, you know, every employee needs to be able to answer four questions. You know, what's my role? How am I going? You know, what's my future? Those sorts of things. And, and just having that embedded in what we call um, skip interviews, skip level interviews, manager once removed interviews, all of those sorts of things. So that was quite very important in the whole system. And then Anne came to us again and uh, we introduced elements of Landmark, which was really what we were finding was that we still weren't 
tipping over the edge with you know that sort of velocity and breakthrough of things. You know, we were doing things well, and the culture was so much better. But we wanted more. Were we were getting the outcomes that we really, you know, all this investment in culture. Is it delivering the outcomes or not? And so we identified that one of the things getting in the way was well, us as individuals, as leaders, we were limiting ourselves because of the way human beings are wired. And so we had to sort of unpack that a little bit. What makes each individual tick? How do we have candid conversations that achieve breakthrough performance? That was the hardest thing we ever did because that was going right back to what shapes me as a person. You know, We've got the measurement and staying the course with measurement. We've got embedding it in strategy and actually setting goals. So when we've done our strategy, we've said we want to be in the, like the top 90th percentile in the human synergistics constructive culture. And we're going to measure across the company and at group level and at team level. And we're going to support our people managers. We're going to help our leaders be the best that they can be by giving them all of the training and equipping them. You know, and some people fell by the wayside, absolutely, in, the, in this whole journey. But you know, it, it got sharper and sharper and sharper as we went by. So to the point where you probably couldn't say what the culture was, but you could feel it and you knew it. And people who would walk into our business would feel it straight away. And it's just the way we roll. Well, you know, it's an expression we often use, but it's so present. And the thing about culture is um, the way uh, you recognise behaviours, reward or punish behaviours, that shapes performance. And so we have that insight around if you recognise people in a certain way, if you encourage them and support them in a certain way, you're going to get the right outcomes. You know, the way we, we lead and manage our people is the single most important thing in our business. And we, we often talked about in the mid-period of this cultural journey that how we do things is just as important as what we do. And I must admit, I, you know, one thing I didn't mention is that in, in the middle of this, we went backwards on our culture, which was a bit of a shock. Okay. And part of that was that we thought we'd had it handled. We said, oh, we've done all Got the work there. on culture. We don't <laughs> have to do anything more. And the big lesson learned there was you, you have to day in, day out, manage the existence of culture. And one of the blind spots that we had probably there was that we were doing a lot of great things across the organisation, but the visibility wasn't there for people. So we weren't telling the stories, we weren't reinforcing through reward and recognition what we wanted in cultural behaviours and and so forth. So that was a big lesson for us as well. So it's a 20-year journey, really? 20-year journey. Which makes sense why it has landed so well or or made such a difference. If you do read, read Harvard, HBR at times, they'll say that a leadership program in itself doesn't have a return. In an individual leadership program, it's hard to prove you get a return on investment. But when you've done what you've done, which is embed a broad culture, then ladder clear leadership capability on top of that. And I love almost that self-actualization of bringing in Landmark to go to the next level. And you're building all the time. You can achieve amazing things. And as you say, it's a strategic differentiator for you. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's why you can do what you can do. Yeah. How many companies can say that? It's, no, uh, it's unfortunate. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to get into another side of the coin, which is innovation, because the other thing that we, while observing your culture, the other thing we observed was you'd had these really incredibly successful innovations, and you had some other stuff that you'd learned from as well. Yeah. But over the, even in the last decade, you've scaled innovations or, or new lines of business compared to your core that is really the holy grail for many companies. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, I mean, some innovations are, you know, obviously technology-enabled innovations, but there are other innovations as well just in terms of the way we we think and the processes that we adopt that, you know, might not be obvious. But the, the one that, for me, 
from uh, outside the organisation, you'd say, oh, that's interesting that you'd see that as an innovation, but it was running a citizen's jury process a few years back. You know, part of the regulatory process here is that we submit a five-year plan of what we're proposing to do and the investments associated with that and ultimately the prices. And the regulator sort of signs off on that after reviewing it in, in a lot of detail. But the regulator in more recent times has pushed for more customer representation in the plan. You know, what are the customers wanting? And you know, with two million people in a service area, it's very tricky to know what they all want. You can sort of have a working hypothesis, which is, well, if we just sat here with five minutes, I know that they would say improve service and keep price flat or drop price and keep service uh, the same. <laughs> it's sort of a useful starting point, but it's not enough. So how do you really get into the hearts and minds of what the community wants? So it's new to sort of monopoly utilities. To sit down with a citizen's jury and actually hand over the decision-making to 35 people representing our customer base and go through a very deep immersion of our business for several months, that was tough and risky because if you do a citizen's jury process and you empower that group of people, you'd want to have a bloody good reason not to go with what they want. So on the first night of that experience, I, I actually said to the jury, I feel like I'm handing the keys of my car to my teenage son over to you. <laughs> and that's how anxious I was. <laughs> but you know what? They said they were pleased to hear that because it meant that we had integrity and that we were you know, all in on the process. But ultimately, going through that, we had such a deep insight on what our community expects and value. And then we backed that up with some quantitative stuff. But when we went to the regulator, we were so confident that we actually had hit the mark with what the community expected. And it went through very smoothly. And that those insights, they're going to carry through for a long time. We'll keep testing them, but they are now embedded in what's important to our, our customers. And we're lined up with all of that stuff. And it's a promise that we've made that we're going to deliver. So that was really important. If I think about some of the others, you know, waste energy is, is the classic, you know, poster child, I guess, for <laughs> innovation. That was a bit risky, calculated risk. You know, so what we're doing there was that we built a, a dedicated food waste to energy processing facility co-located with our sewage treatment plant out in the north there at, uh, at Willert. We're taking 150 tonnes a day of food waste that would normally go to landfill and using that, using sewage treatment processes and the, and the knowledge of bugs and chemicals that we have to take that waste and convert it to renewable energy. So that's been a real winner. So we're, we're powering, you know, using that food waste. We charge a gate fee for the waste coming in. It's cheaper than landfill. You know, we're reducing all of our operating expenditure on energy from the grid and we're exporting to the grid. So 70% of the energy gets exported to the grid. The rest gets used on site to power our treatment plants. So that's been an absolute winner and we're very much uh, down the track with our second waste energy plant planning. And it's the first of its kind in Australia not just in utilities, but in the whole country. You know, this is the first large-scale anaerobic digestion food processing plant, so so proud of that. Can I drill that more? It's pretty topical at the moment, the whole you know, gas, renewables, yeah. baseload, really fundamental to the, our, as a country, how quickly we can move to fully renewable. Do you see waste to energy at scale? Is, is there ability to scale it yes. in the country across the whole and, and could it be a new form of part of the baseload oh. of, of the power that could help transform. Absolutely. I mean, look, you get a double whammy with this too. Not, not only, you know, are you reducing your take off the grid, but you take food waste out of landfill. You're having a very beneficial impact on reduction in greenhouse gases. And if you can do it commercially, because there's a hell of a lot of food waste out there. So, I mean, really what we're taking at our plant is modest compared to how much food waste there is. You know, one of the tricks has been, you know, what's the cost of landfill? And is the true cost 
of pollution. Is that signal being sent to people who produce it? And probably not would be the answer. But if you think that, you know, even recently, I think the government has announced that, you know, the cost of landfills going up, that's going to make this sort of technology and process even more viable. I mean, obviously you'd prefer that the food waste wasn't there, but, you know, I think Melbourne produces something like 3 million tonnes of food waste a year. That's a lot. And we're taking probably about 35,000 tonne of that. 1%? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> so you can see that there's there's a lot more scope. I mean, the other thing that people say, food, renewable energy. But if you think about waste, we are in the waste business. We already process 70% of the liquid waste that's produced in the city. So it's a natural extension. And uh, yeah, I'm really proud of that. I mean, we did a reasonable amount of work. It was being done. It's being done in Europe. Obviously, you know, they have stricter environmental controls maybe and uh, landfill is not as prevalent and, and so forth, so the business case might be a bit different. But if they could do it, why couldn't we do it? But there's always got to be someone who goes first and yeah. that's always a calculated risk. Yeah, yeah. But I was really pleased, you know, as a government business owner, um, you know, we went to the Treasury. We didn't reflect this investment in our customers' prices. We actually went to the government and said, does the government want to take the risk on us building this? ultimately through to the government dividend, that's where the risk plays out. And the government was really supportive because it you know, ticks so many policy objectives as well. So that's been a real winner. And I mean, the interesting thing about waste energy is that if you think about the water sector, we're fundamentally, like everyone, but in a very deep way, impacted by climate change because climate change is reducing the reliability of the inflows into our catchments that we used to rely on. So we need alternative sources of water, but we also need to be part of the solution in addressing climate change. So it sort of you know goes around in one circle, if you like. So uh, for us, it was a bit of a no-brainer. So we're committed as a business to commercially viable way to generate all of our own energy needs by 2025 through renewables. So we built solar farms. Uh, if you've ever been to our office, you'll notice that you know we've got a massive car park at the back with with solar panels, and we're now just interestingly enough starting to explore hydrogen. And we do think that there's a potential role for water utilities in hydrogen production. Mm -hmm. Again, because we can use outputs from hydrogen in the sewage treatment process, but we also have, if you can imagine, a um, sewage treatment plant processing sewage with a food waste energy plant generating renewable energy, energy and recycled water, you've got some really important ingredients then <laughs> in the whole hydrogen production process. So that's another one that uh, we're mucking around with, but I think, watch this space. <laughs> that's good, it's really, it's game changing. It's game changing. Yeah. Probably the third one worth talking about is our new digital meter, which I'm really excited about. It's not across the line yet, but that's an interesting one in the sense that we've all seen what happened with energy and smart metering and you know there's a lot of concerns in the community. But in water, it's a little bit different. We've been working for a long time on the technology. There's a lot of benefit in it. And the primary benefit is to be able to detect leaks really early. But the, the metering technology is not being there. And as you can imagine, water's different to energy because we don't have a power source where our meter is. So to design a meter that lasts long enough with a battery that gives us the data that we need at the price point has been really hard. And the market's not quite there to make the business case viable. So what drove us there, which is, I think, an insight into the culture, is that I guess a bit of a frustration that there, there wasn't a product that was at a price point that we felt was appropriate or viable for the business case. So we spoke to some local product design organisations in our customer base, believe it or not, and uh, having a discussion about them, we started to talk about, well, what if we designed our own? Could you actually prototype and design a meter that meets your needs? So from a functionality point of view, from a battery life, from a cost to, to, to produce, can it be done? So it's the first meter in the world designed by a water utility for a water utility. 
and uh, we've just got the patent squared away and uh, we're just working through what we do next with it. But if you can imagine the global market for water meters yeah. is uh, pretty significant. And if we've come up with a, an innovative product that ticks all the boxes, it's very exciting. So our guys have been sort of bootlegging on that for a little while now and it's coming to fruition. So that's super exciting as well. But that's, I guess, an insight again into the problem solving mindset that our people have. And if the market couldn't deliver it, why don't we have a crack and see what's possible? And even in the end, if our meter doesn't end up being overly commercially viable, it's disrupted the market because they know we're working on it. And, yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, you get yeah. a response. And really, at the end of the day, what we want is what's best for our customers. And uh, we're not going to do digital metering if it doesn't work properly. Or, and we're not going to ask our customers to pay any more for it. And we want them to benefit. So the trials that we've been doing in, in that space have been fascinating. Um, and again, it's it's customer led, you know. So we put digital meters out in our Vermont South area trial, and uh, within an hour, we're able to SMS the customer with we think you might have unusual water usage. And one particular chap, you know, we SMSed him. He had a, a, a faulty toilet system. He went down to Bunnings, got a thirty dollar part, fixed it, and it was, he was wrapped. Now he would normally not get that insight with a normal meter. He would have to wait for three months to get the manual read of the meter, and then the bill, and then get bill shock and go, what have I got? Have I got a leak? So that's the sort of breakthrough that, you know, it's super exciting in our space. Absolutely. I remember when I was leading IoT at Telstra, water was probably the big opportunity, right? Because it was something like 30% of water is lost through leaks either in the system or in the homes, like, or some huge amount. It depends on where you are. In Melbourne, it's about 10%. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's still incredible. It's incredible. So, yeah, simple business case for the right technology is... Oh. Clearer than many other, put it this way, when it comes to IoT, there aren't that many clear business cases out there. Yeah. That's a really clear one. It's the big breakthrough, IoT and being able to have devices. So we're also working on a sensor, which is you know another cost breakthrough because the technology sort of works, but its cost is prohibitive. So, But if you can imagine being able to get real-time information on how your infrastructure is working, you can be far more proactive as an organisation. You know, At the moment, traditionally, what utilities rely on someone to call and say, oh, there's a leak in the street, or my sewer's overflowing, God forbid. So to be able to actually get early insight on the infrastructure and, and intervene really quickly, that's a breakthrough in service. Absolutely. Can I ask you, have you had to kill any of your children, so to speak? It's <laughs> a terrible way of putting it, but yeah, innovation talk. But I imagine over the time you've had a couple that you're really attached to that you just couldn't scale, couldn't get over the line, had to say goodbye to. Yeah, there's been a few. A couple in particular stand out, and they were, they were a long time ago, but some really valuable lessons learnt. And, you know, I talked about the, the very first MD, and, and he was quite entrepreneurial mm. as well and pushing the envelope. And we actually created a plumbing business back in the late 90s because we could see what was going on with customers. You know, we, we stopped at the meter. It, it could be add value on the other side of the meter. And, you know, as an organisation that had billing systems and call centres and a trusted brand, you know, could we add value to the community? And, and at the same time, we started selling rainwater tanks and water efficiency products. We were ahead of our time in the thinking. But Log logical adjacency, oh, logical, right? logical adjacency. It was before the drought. Just imagine if we'd had a, kept this thing going. Because <laughs> everyone, you know, Bunnings all of a sudden, you know, they're selling yep. garden mulch and rainwater tanks. So we were doing that before all of that. But unfortunately, the conditions that we placed on that just meant that it was overburdened. So it wasn't nimble. So we said, oh, it must use our, our call centre. It must use our bloody big legacy billing system. It must use this. It must use that. And then, of course, because you're a government-owned organisation, you're held to a much higher standard as well. So it, our service has got all the bells and whistles. So two things. One was from a cost 
point of view, it really wasn't making a huge amount of money. If you think of a billion dollar business, how big does this other you know, ancillary business need to be to make a material contribution? And there were a lot of other offerings in the market coming to the fore, you know, as I said. So all of a sudden, you know, we were selling rainwater tanks, then others started selling rainwater tanks. We weren't cost competitive, so we exited. Conceptually, I think we were definitely on the right train. Execution, we definitely weren't. And you know, I think there was also, I mean, obviously with the plumbing uh, business, we wanted to make sure that there were plumbing jobs. And there was obviously a little bit of you know, anxiousness from the plumbing fraternity of a large utility stepping into that space as well. And all of that sort of came to the fore. This is not the right time or the right thing to be doing. But those learnings, right? So that's the, that the longevity of, of your team and the culture, the learnings from that are still being active in how you make decisions today. And that's the beauty of what you've been able to create is a culture that's been built over a long time but has a memory, knows what works. Yeah. 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 Which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah. So let's connect those two. How do you think this culture and this leadership, this highly evolved leadership culture that you've built has been able to hold the space for innovation, been able to stay lean, make the right commercial decisions, move quickly when you need to, all those things. How connected is the culture to the outcomes you're getting in innovation? How, what could you point to? Well, I mean, I think, as I said before, behaviours get shaped by what gets rewarded and punished in a very simplistic way, but that's the truth from the time we're little kids. So really the way the culture plays out is in a couple of different realms. If I think about when things go wrong, when people try, try something, the most critical next thing is what, what you do as a leader, how you respond to that. So if it's, you know, who do I blame, who, who gets a sack versus what do we learn? And having that all the way through to the board is really important because then it provides freedom for people. So that's really important about the signals that you send as a leader. The second thing that's probably worked for us in a pretty compelling way is when we develop our strategy, we're quite aspirational and we stand in the future. And maybe we've got the luxury because we're a long, long-term business. You know, when we make investments, the assets last for 50 years longer. So we, we can afford to take a long-term view, I guess. But when we do that, we stand in the future and we, we imagine things. We, we talk about what would a high-performing, from a customer point of view organisation, look like in 2030? What would customer service look like? What would superior environmental outcomes look like? And, and then we start to unpack that. And so we're quite clear about our ambition and aspiration, but not specific on how you're going to do it. So we might set the long-term goals, like by 2025, we want to, you know, our aspiration is to produce all of our own energy from renewable sources in a commercially viable way. That's the sort of the parameters. Now go forth and reimagine what we do and think differently about how we can do that and empower the teams to try things. So I think that, that those two things combined is how we respond when things go wrong and also the, the strategic enabling environment that empowers people to actually get on with it and try things in a different way and to play a bigger game. And if I go back all the way to the, one of the earlier questions about shaping our, our leadership muscle and capability, one thing I, I left out was some of the work that we did with another organisation called JMW and uh, their Leader of the Future course, which I guess was the, almost like the icing on the cake in terms of the way we saw ourselves as leaders and, and what, what our job is. Uh, because that particular leadership training encouraged us to really think about what we're up for. So what we were personally committed to and could we line that up with what we did at work? And I think that's obviously that's when the magic occurs is if you actually can get alignment between a person's personal values and, and what, what they're committed to and what the organisation is actually doing. And maybe we've got some natural advantages there being an essential service that the community really needs 
one that's at the forefront now, at uh, the pointy end of great challenges of population growth and climate change and navigating all of that. So you've got that external context. And then you, if you have the right culture and people playing a bigger game. So the whole idea and one of the notions that we were you know, taught was around you know, what we call intervening in the drift. So you know, every organisation, including ourselves, can be guilty of drifting. And you know, there is a predictable path. You could probably sit down for any organisation, draw a sort of a chart and say, here's, if we don't do anything, here's our predictable level of performance. But you know, the notion of, you know what, as a leader, that's not your job. That's a manager's job. Now, leaders intervene in that curve to get better results that otherwise wouldn't have occurred without their intervention. So being on the lookout for, am I leading us to a drift? Am I intervening or not? And having that question in the back of your mind, that's a really powerful place to be as well. You touched on, Pat, the next journey that you do think ahead. And I think you guys are in the middle of that at the moment, yeah. imagining the next 10 years. And you also touched on something there, which was the relationship to the board and that trust and something we've had the privilege to see is that incredible trust that you have and, and challenge, I'd yeah. say. How are you thinking about innovation as you frame this next decade? You stand in the future. How does that start to play out in terms of framing the areas of innovation that you're working in? And how important is that relationship with the board, the governance role in succeeding in taking this forward? Yeah, well, I think maybe start with the second part of that yeah. question first. That alignment with the board is fundamental. Everything's easier for everyone when you're aligned. It doesn't matter if you're talking about risk, strategy, financial performance, or culture. When you're aligned, life's much better. <laughs> <laughs> but to get to alignment, you have to have a lot of conversations to unpack what's important to people and really be listening in a very powerful way for what what people express as their concerns and then try to translate that into what does that really mean in terms of what they're committed to. So a lot of work on alignment and unpacking things to get a shared perspective. And then when you've got a shared perspective and a shared alignment, you're not second guessing yourself after that. You know, no one's second guessing thinking, oh, there's another shiny thing over there that we need to run it. Or, or what have we, have we thought of that? We thought of, no, we've, we're actually now very much aligned on what a compelling future looks like together. And now the board uh, is entrusting management to get on and deliver it and will support us in that. So one of the interesting things with going back to the culture discussion is that the board were, you know, because the boards can change from time to time, particularly, you know, when, when governments change as well. And when we got this particular board, they were very interested in the culture. And they'd all come from very rich, diverse backgrounds. But I think a lot of them were fascinated by the culture to the point where they've done their own measure up using the human synergistic. I don't know how many boards have actually done that because they really wanted to understand the tool, understand what it meant and get new insights for themselves about how do we be a better board. So they're up for the same game. So that's been really, really interesting to have that. So we come from a place where there's, it's total transparency, I feel backed up, but also appropriately and respectfully challenged, which is absolutely you know what you want from the board, but committed to the same things. And if I you know go back to the first part of your question now, it really is that discussion about what does success look like. You know, and for us, it's what does a water utility look like in the 21st century in the lives of the community, in the lives of the people, and the shared environment that we all we all enjoy, and having a discussion about that. And then that's the discussion that then unpacks, again, what's fundamentally important to all the individuals. And so for us, you know, we're developing a 2030 strategy. It's a 10-year strategy. I remember when we did our last strategy, which was a seven-year strategy, we had a lot of people saying, seven years is a long time. And I kept thinking, have we gone too far with this thing? But the time has gone like that for us. And maybe, again, because of the long game that we play uh, and the nature of our business, it, it suits us. But 10 years just feels so right now. And for us, you know, being the first water utility to sign up to the UN Global Compact and the Sustainable Development Goals, which 
a target 2030 completion. It's the perfect time frame. And it gives us an ability to sort of think about different horizons and land, land the planes at the right time in terms of our ambitions. So when we think about our 2030 strategy, it's the three key realms and the, the immediate priority one, which will be all the way through the 10 years, but is really about the transformation around the customer because without the customers and their permission, we don't exist. The second one is you know, playing that bigger game in community resilience and, and water security and, and those sorts of things and you know, helping communities thrive. And then the final one is that whole environmental stewardship leadership and thinking about the environment in a very different way, you know, a circular economy, regenerative thinking. And this is where hydrogen and all these other ideas come from, but gives you that long time scale to think about those things and place a few bets, trial some things, move quickly, be agile. So that's the beauty of, of having that long-term strategy and then having, a, I guess, a governance arrangement around that to say, in each of those realms, what's our ambition? What does success look like? If this is the current state and that's the future state, what are the bets that we might need to play, uh, make in our R&D? But try to be really disciplined and again, stay that course. Mm. You know, we've got great partnerships with universities, for instance. So we did a lot of work with the unis around Australia, actually, on R&D and, and small pieces of work, but that inform what we're doing. So from a governance arrangement, it's about looking at those three lenses and then saying, is the R&D portfolio for each necessary and sufficient? Is there stuff there that's not going to make any difference? And have we got any gaps? And then to keep re revisiting that and then checking in with the board on a regular basis, you know, probably once every six months. We haven't fully implemented this, but to say, you know, here's our R&D innovation pipeline uh, and how it relates to the strategy. This one worked, this one didn't. We're going to pivot and have those conversations. And you guys are moving towards more of an integrated P&L or a measurement portfolio that captures all yeah. of your mandates from revenue and financial through to customer, through to social and, and community. That's a big step to literally change how you measure the success of the company. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, well, we sort of pioneered that a few years back and uh, it was really around, I think, if I use an example, way back when we were looking at the growing north of Melbourne, which is a mass, one of Australia's highest growth areas. You know, we've got, I think, two of the top three fastest growing suburbs in the country. And of course, water and sewage has to be in before people move in or businesses get developed. So we were doing the long-term planning for that and thinking about how we can supply water. And if we just looked at a very narrow view of our business, we would just supply water from the shared system, from the dams and the desal plant. If we took a broader perspective of the business and the impacts, both positive and negative, and tried to monetize the externalities, we have a very different view of what's, what's an appropriate solution for that particular area. And for us, we ended up mandating recycled water for 100,000 homes, which is the largest recycled water project in the country in terms of scale or commitment. And the reason we were able to do that is we started to look at the externalities of pumping water from Melbourne's east to the north and from transferring sewage from the north to the south. That's the way it sort of works in Melbourne. And looking at the uh, greenhouse gases that were emitted, the nutrients that were discharged and putting a, trying to put a value of those nutrients into the environment and uh, you know ultimately ending up in the bay you know, and those sorts of things. So, you know, nitrogen into the bay. So by designing a different approach and thinking differently and monetizing things and taking what we call life cycle analysis approach, we came up with a different answer. That was a very early foray. And then we're just 
got more and more curious about how do we think differently about the value that we create and the impacts that we have and can we put a dollar value on it? Which led, led to the first integrated profit and loss statement, which it's not an exact science, it's a bit of an art still, but it's about being curious. So that, that first integrated profit and loss looked at the human capital that we produce, the social capital, the environmental capital, of course the economic capital, and how much value we generate by looking at our business through a very different lens. What's the contribution to society? And uh, what are the impacts that we're having? And that's been fascinating. And we were able to sort of see, for instance, the return on investment from a dollar invested in water efficiency was a lot more than, so for our, I think, water efficiency investment, for every dollar that we invested, we were getting an $8 return. For every dollar we invested in hardship programs to support the vulnerable, there was something like a $30 return wow to society yeah that's right so if you, you could take a narrow view or a, or a broad view and that sort of em, emboldens us to keep playing that bigger game and, and to try those things because to keep taking a step further and further further back you can actually start to see where you know, the real, where the real value gets generated i think too many organizations take such a short-term narrow view of their world that they're probably doing themselves a disservice when I talk about innovation, that's a huge innovation, a transformative innovation in its own right, especially in a world where this idea of what is shareholder value, what really drives a public company is being debated and needs to be debated because things are changing radically and, and the quarterly return to the shareholder could or should no longer be the thing that drives the decision-making of an organisation. Something like an integrated PL could be the transformative tool that really helps us be a 21st century company with a vision towards climate as opposed to a 20th century company with a vision towards profit. Yeah, look, it gives you insights and you have to be curious about those things. And if you take a really short-term view, I mean, you you think about all the organisations that don't exist anymore. Most of them would have been taking a quarterly to quarterly, you know, report to the market sort of perspective. But, you know, the organisations I think that are sustaining and, and growing are the ones that, you know, understand that they're part of a bigger ecosystem. And I guess looking for what are the big problems that society has that we can solve commercially? And if you can do that, then I think you're in, in a sustainable business model. And obviously it's got to line up with your own you know, capabilities and competencies. I mean, we're very fortunate in many respects that there's a policy setting for us from the government around you know, things like climate change that encourages us to you know, really lean into those mm. challenges and, and empowers us. And so, yeah, I think taking that longer term view is so important and being curious about all of those things. Well, mate, thank you so much. Really appreciated the chance to work with you guys, but also to really hear that story. It's everything I hope for, and it makes sense for why you guys have been able to be so successful with culture and be such an innovative organisation you are. So thanks so much. My and, pleasure. Um, hopefully we'll speak again. Go on, John. Cheers, Cheers mate. Elbow. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this episode of The Corporate Innovator. As always, thanks for listening. And if you're loving the episodes, be sure to tell your friends or leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you've got any thoughts, questions or guest ideas for the show, you can email me at hi at ie.com.au. See you next time.